Hello and welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast by Bald Move. We're the officially unofficial podcast for all things uh, concerning HBO's Game of Thrones. I'm your host, Aaron, and joining me is... Anthony. And like we did last year, we are back to kind of prime the Game of Thrones pump, and we're here to talk about our new book, Gods of Thrones. Last year, we released Volume 1 because of the incredible generosity and response to our Kickstarter. One of the stretch goals was to produce a Volume 2. Uh, and we Which have, we have done. We, we have actually done that. We have produced a second volume, and there's lots of cool topics that we didn't get to touch, in, uh, touch on, obviously, in the first uh, book. We are covering, the, among others, the religion of the Faceless Men, the Drowned God's religion, um, the Targaryen a dragon cult. Um, the Dothraki... The Lazar religion. Yeah, the, some of the, the, the steps, plains people of Essos. We, re, we revisit the religions of the north and ask, is Bran a god? Is Bran a god? And we are going to be talking about some of those topics this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about how the Targaryens' policy of incest drove their militarism and their, their need to con- conquer Westeros. Uh, we're going to be talking about how... Uh, uh, Danny engaged in a little bit of horse trading when it came to Dario Naharis. And then we're going to have a segment we call Fun with Names because there's lots of fun names and they're fun to say and they're fun to hear. And we're going to say them and you're going to presumably li- listen to it. <laughs> uh, so, so, so we have made volume two. Uh, we, it is now available on presale. If you go to Amazon.com, uh, there's a link to it in the show notes to to our product page. You can actually order pre-order volume two, so you'll get it the moment it is released. We are unlike last time, going to have a simultaneous print and ebook uh, campaign. So if you have a Kindle, uh, you're great. If you want to see a dead weirwood tree, weirwood tree pro- production, we've got you covered there. Uh, please pre-order a book now. Its release date is the ninth, which corresponds to our first uh, Jim and Aaron official promo podcast for game of thrones season eight we did the trailer talk uh just a couple weeks ago we're going to be doing two weeks of gods of thrones promotion and then get right into the season so that's that's how you is have i left anything out anthony well if you enjoy some of the original illustrations by our magnificent artist chase stone uh, you can go to godsofthrones.com and uh, purchase. They, can, they cannot do that as of the time we're recording. Oh shit! <laughs> that's something we're going to be doing next week. That's that's uh, next week promo promo. All right, all right, all right, all right. What else? But we do. <laughs> I, I'm, um, that that reminded me of. Oh, we probably need to get a Kickstarter update. To like, um, maybe I can go ahead and do that. If you did a work Kickstarter supporter, the good news is you will get uh, the rewards appropriate to your level. Like if you backed a physical copy of the book, you will get a physical copy of Volume Two, no extra charge. If you backed a ebook level, you'll get those ebooks sent out in the mail. Actually, as soon as well, you'll probably be getting those sooner rather than later because um, those are going to be ready to go before obviously the print edition on Kindle. Or on Amazon's ready to go, um, and as well as I know, some people are waiting on the poster pack rewards. Um, those are going to go out now too, since we have all the all the art, and we've got a lot of cool new pieces. If nothing else, check out the product page just so you can see the cover, uh, because Chase uh, Stone, our, our artist, uh, we commissioned him to do the first one. Uh, first cover is about the first men burning down the weirwoods. This goes a little bit further back in time. 
and shows us the the children actually carving their their fa- the the faces on the weirwoods, and it's really stunning, spooky piece of art, if I do say so myself. Indeed, yeah, he really outdid himself this time. And there's lots of other cool art to check out as well. Uh, again, go to the show notes of the podcast, and uh, you can see. Uh, you, you you can pre-order that. You can you can preview the uh, the the cover. Um, you can see what some other religious scholars have said about Volume Two uh, and their their recommendation for it. And uh, other than that, let's let's get into the meat of the podcast. Let's do it. Hey, I thought we could start a conversation because uh, I you know I, I've I've had the. I've had the interesting prep for this podcast of essentially reading our book two or three times in the last few weeks because, uh, you know, we're doing the final uh, proofreading um, and then we're doing the final cop, make sure everything is looking good as far as the copy editing and yeah. the formatting, typesetting, typesetting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been, I've, I've been forced, quote unquote, forced to read it. Yeah, we've now unified King's Landing. It, it all It is two words. There is an apostrophe. <laughs> Um, and there's one that I thought was really an interesting point that, uh, you made, which is you're doing this, uh, you know, these books are all about comparative analysis of religions and game of Thrones and the politics and cultures there. And you made a lot of interesting comparisons between the Targaryen dynasty and the Egyptian dynasties of antiquity. Right. Um, and one of the things you point out is how important it was in like, like the, breeding keeping the keeping the bloodlines pure is 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 important for lots of different um political structures over history we see this in lots of kings and queens where you'd marry cousins and stuff um but like the egyptians practice a very extreme form where like brother would be wed to sister for generations and generations and that was not perhaps ideal for a guy like king tut uh tut in common it seems like he had a lot of uh like uh biological issues as a result of all that yeah inbreeding. we've actually done we, we, we've we've had uh you, you can actually look it up they've done dna study mm-hmm. and determined that the boy ain't he, right <laughs> yeah yeah he's probably the product of of incest and um and this is not uncommon yeah so they you, you mentioned that um and what you fire and blood makes us very clear how the targaryens um kind of came in with marrying brother and sister and for several of the first generations that they were all about that they continued doing that mold even when they're like wow this has really caused us a lot of grief with the common folk and with the new religion they still couldn't 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 say no to that sweet brother sister marriage action well um, and it's part of the world building stuff because if if Indeed, there is this belief or reality that marrying, keeping the bloodline pure, will will facilitate better control of their dragons, and the and basically mm-hmm. their their the dragons are their lifeblood. They, they cannot exist without their mm-hmm. dragons because they're otherwise they're a pretty weak family, right? Mm-hmm. So the, if you believe that in order to keep that connection strong, you have to keep the bloodlines pure, then you're going to want to make sure that you marry someone from the blood of old Valyria, right? Right. Well, and there's also like, you know, that's the world building in here, but like in real world, real life, they've got these, um, 
you know, ruling class ideologies where it's like, why is the king ruling over us again? Oh, because he's just better. Why is he better? He has the royal blood. He has the he blue has blood. magic blood. He had it's, it's a, that's literally what it is. And yes. obviously, if you take that magic blood and you mingle it with some commoner blood, huh, you, you know, they're, 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 you're going to get common. <laughs> you're going to get mud blood in there to yeah, go to Harry right. Potter terms. And, and then he <laughs> might not be able to rule. So you want to keep that bloodline pure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the the Targaryen's extreme practice of this blood purity actually might be one of the prime reasons that Aegon is remembered as a conqueror because it's there's there's two ways you can gain lands and titles in a feudal system like like Wester, Westeros. One, you can do it by conquest. The second is you can form marriage and polit- uh, uh, political alliances through intermarriage. Yeah, clearly the Targaryens, at least the the first couple generations of Targaryens are rejecting marriage offers from from other and other noble families. Mm-hmm. So 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 Aegon's getting getting a, a peace treaties in the form of marriage offers from other uh, noble families, but he's rejecting them. So if he wants to expand beyond Dragonstone, and he's not willing to marry into a into another tribe then he he's going to have to take it by force, right? Right. He has to. There's no other way. There's no other way. I mean, I guess he could be really nice, but that doesn't only get you <laughs> land, right? You could. I mean, there's also you could purchase, I suppose. It's the other, like, you know, wealth uh, using that influence. But, um, yeah, I mean, imagine if he had married one sister uh, to the Stormlands to consolidate that and married another of his sisters to the Vale. And then he himself married one of the princesses from a third kingdom. You'd almost, you'd have half a Westeros uh, sewn up just by default. And then you keep playing that politics and forcing the smaller kingdoms to get online. And you could conceivably unite Westeros through, I mean, that's kind of like, uh, the story of of Western Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries, right? That that these these things were all like that's one of the reasons uh, World War One is kind of a family affair. Like literally, every right. one of the, the the major belligerents, uh, the Kaiser, the king, the 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 king was a king of England, yeah, king of England. Um, the the different Prussian and and the Russian army, they 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 were all led by essentially cousins. This is all just like a fam, fam, family squabble, right? Um, Right, Aegon did not do that because of uh, their their views on blood yeah. purity. And and think about what are dragons good for? They're good for conquering. Yes, and they're good for as a symbol of power. Right. So mm-hmm. in, in the same way that we, you know, America has this nuclear arsenal, mm-hmm. they the threat of that arsenal allows America to uh, deal from a position of power. Mm-hmm. So Aegon's sitting there thinking, why should I why should I share my power with these, you know, people from the crown lands or the neck or wherever when I've got dragons and I will just take it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, so so yeah, so if you're committed to marrying your sister, so you're not going to have an marriage alliance and you have dragons and you're committed to you know, you using your dragons to great effect, it means that you're going to conquer. Yeah, that 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 will facilitate a conquest. So I was, I was also curious with this hypothesis. Um, 
I don't know how well you know your truly ancient Egyptian politics, but did like the some of those kingdoms have trouble with diplomacy because they were all about you know keeping it in the family? So it's 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 interesting because we're all with ancient history. We are always uh, dealing with a combination of myth and history, Mm. and. Um, much like the Targaryens, there are exceptions to the rules uh, when it comes to ethics. Because mm-hmm. if you do believe that the royal family is has magic blood, then they are fundamentally different than commoners. Mm-hmm. And the, and what we're talking about here is, as in a sense, the pharaoh is a representative of the divine. So either the son of Ra or a god on earth or whatever, whatever however you want to say and it, that, and that that mirrors the Targaryens because they believe that they right. the god that they all of their gods' names were kind of well it's 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 hard to say which came first chicken and egg they named all their dragons after Targaryen or after Valerian gods right implying that the the dragons themselves were divine mm-hmm. um and they themselves thought that they were also dragons in human form That's so right. that they themselves were divine so the like there there is a, the the Targaryens did see themselves as something of at least demigods if not full-on gods themselves right and even if they don't they they believe that the the blood of the blood of the dragon runs through their veins and so the rules for marriage are different for them than they are for other people. And same thing with, with Egyptians, the, Mm -hmm. the the Egyptian pharaohs uh, are, are really modeling themselves after um, gods who marry brother to sister. So the Mm -hmm. gods marry brother to sister, and then the pharaohs marry brother and sister, not always, but sometimes. And, um, and, and, and again, we have a chicken and the egg thing or the, you know, the, the, what comes first, the myth that gods marry brother to sister or the myth created to justify mm. the pharaohs marrying brother to sister? I also I also imagine it's kind of hard to say because like Egypt is almost unimaginably ancient. Um, one thing that the one stat that I read that's a, a true fact that blows my mind is that Cleopatra who we already think of as like this ancient person and who is in fact mm-hmm. an ancient person. She's closer to us. She's closer to the time of landing on the moon. than then she is to the time when the, uh, like pure, the great pyramids of Giza were constructed. <laughs> That's crazy. Can you fucking imagine? <laughs> she's more like, contemporary to the moon landings than to the pyramids. So like to say that, like, Egypt did this or did that in diplomacy or warfare. It's like, what does that even mean to say this <laughs> dynasty that's literally that like these dynasties that are thousands of years old, you know, it, it really does give give you a sense of what what the Chinese what these Chinese dynasties dynasties were, because, yes, you know, I mean, let's put it this way. When I was living in England, I was living in this little garden cottage that was older than America. Right. It was it was just is, this little this, stone cottage. Sure, sure. And it was older than Thomas Jefferson. So right. uh yeah, it's it's we're very very new on the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. We still have the new country smell. <laughs> we really do. Yeah. And and you know what? It could go away real fast. It could sure. go away real fast. Sure. 
Um, hey, I, I, one thing I want to, since we're talking about uh, Targaryens, I wanted to talk about Danny's relationship with uh, Daria. Okay, yeah, this is a this is kind of an interesting, I guess, development or, or reversal so, of the so stuff. So, first thing, about. Uh, obligatory. We need we need uh, Aaron. We need you to explain the, uh, Book Dario's uh, visage. So, Book Dario is. Uh, he's he's ridiculous looking by modern uh, non-Westerosi standards. He has a forked beard that he's dyed this vivid blue. His hair is is long and it is also dyed blue. He's got gold teeth. Uh, he's got this prominent kind of like hooked nose. Um, he looks he he kind of looks like a more extreme punk rock version of uh, Johnny Depp. From from the Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, Doesn't gold, he have like, a, a gold tooth. Did you already mention? Yeah, I said gold tooth. teeth. I think he yeah. also has like his mustachio is like twirled and braid, and it's got like so there's like gold adornments in there, and he's got you know, um, uh, you know these these uh, these these daggers and racks that have these golden naked women. Like I, in the book, I refer to him as like trucker mud flap uh, <laughs> women, women, and yeah. which was I think it's interesting out of all the extreme features of Dario that they choose to omit from, you know, translating him to screen. They keep the naked lady hand that they keep the trucker mud flap handles, everything right. else. Nah, we got, whether you prefer the Euro trash flavor of Dario or the sleek, sleepy Dario Naquilis version, uh, that was in season three on, uh, they, they did tone him down. They, they did give him the real world, you know, boiled leather kind right. of treatment. Yeah. Well, he's supposed to be, you're supposed to get the sense that he's 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 a mimbo. He he really is. He, yeah. He's he is a he's a sexual object, and I don't think that if you brought book description Dario to the screen, he would he'd be viewed as a clown. He wouldn't be viewed right. as a sex object. Although right? I don't because, like I said, I, I think that like when I was growing up, uh, Axl Rose was very popular, it's and true. I always thought like I don't understand what a woman would see in Axl Rose, but. You know, I clearly was not a teenage girl uh, during that time, and and him his uh, dude slink, forget Axl Rose. What about like Billy Joel? I mean, the, hey, the fact Billy Joel is a smoldering <laughs> hunk of of pure sex, and Christy Brinkley is not wrong in in that in, in that respect, um, it, dude. If you're a rock star, it really it, it really doesn't matter what, you, especially in in the eighties. And that's and 90s. so. I think that's what you're supposed to understand is Dario Naharis is a rock star. Danny right. is literally a teenage girl, and she is complete. Like her mind is completely blown by like you know uh, her brother the. Uh, it was, it was always tried to maintain and like posture the perfect Targaryen, you right. know, grooming and dress. And here's this rough and tumble dude that gets shit done and very masculine. And anyway, we're 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 we're, no, ra- we're running way far afield with our crushes on Dario <laughs> Naharis here. So yeah, no, all right. So one of the things that we talk about in the book that was interesting to both of us was how different uh, Danny is as basically a sort of a slave bride at the beginning, right. And what she becomes when she is, you know, going going after Dario. So mm-hmm. she's she really is in love with with Drogo, right? Mm-hmm. And but Drogo is, as far as his power in the relationship, mm-hmm. he has almost all of the power in the relationship, right? And she's got to try to figure out how to use sex to gain a little bit of power in that relationship. But when we when we end up meeting 
Danny in the Dance of Dragons, she has all of the power in the relationship with Dario. Right. So it's completely flipped. And and it's it's almost like she is now in the position that Drogo was in that in that relationship and Dario is basically her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. So that that interested me and it also interested well, there's, in there's me. There's also some some background that I thought was fascinating when you're making these points is that um this is in a deep dive in like the Dothraki culture because the Dothraki is a very it prizes masculinity and the ability to ride a horse um, and like oh, essentially yeah. to be the, a horseman means that you are the ideal male and, right. and, and not not being able to sit a horse means that you're something less than male right right it's not even ideal male like to be considered masculine in a Dothraki context you had to be a writer in fact the word for Dothraki male implies that you're a writer so if you right. were if you're sick or too weak or whatever, um, you you were not considered. So, like one of the things that the novels, and this is kind of largely absent of the the um, the Dario Naharis that we see in the in the show, but he's like a consummate horse rider. He is, uh, and he's very powerful as a warrior. He's kind of like uh, represents the ideal Dothraki masculine, right? Power. Even though he's not Dothraki, right? He he is a warrior. He's he's a he, you know sexual dynamo, mm-hmm. and, and the the bang this point home. You said you pointed out that uh, you know his last name's Naharis. Nahar is actually the name of Tolkien's uh, uh, horse god. One of the yeah, one of the, right. the 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 mighty uh, you know I guess Shadowfax is probably his great 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 great. Right. So yeah, Nahar is is uh, the the Tolkien horse de- deity. So, so if so you were Martin going to create, is, is making this connection. Yeah. yeah. Yes. If you're going to create the ideal male from a Dothraki perspective. Naharis is exactly what you'd name him. And in the books, he brags, he, you know, he brags about being able to ride faster than an arrow and mm-hmm. uh, whatever. And, and, and clearly the showrunners don't get this because what they do is they they have him say horses are stupid. And of right. course, that's a different character in the books. Anyway, the, here's, the, here's the so point. The, the point is that he's a rock star, yes. uh, Dothraki horse god, right. sex, sex, sex horse god. He's a sex horse god, so yes. uh, so Danny's really into the sex horse god, and uh, but she she takes she takes hold of all of the power in the relationship, which is interesting to me because it, the progression of her character goes from someone who is basically traded like a mm-hmm. horse to the horse people, and then as she accumulates power. She ends up taking power over the ideal Dothraki male. And so she ascends by demonstrating her power over Dario. And in the book, you don't find this in the show, but in the book, eventually, Danny ends up trading Dario to the rulers of Yunkai as a hostage. Right. And so she does to Dario what what was done to her. She, she, she was once traded as an object. And then she ends up taking the, the Dothraki male, the ideal Dothraki male and trades him in, in in a political maneuver. Yeah. So he gets, he gets traded in a way to help her consolidate and keep her power in exactly the same way that her brother traded her as a favor to get. She's, she's become the horse trader. Yeah. 
which that's super cool. And also even like you point out in the book and they, they do a pretty good job of showing this in the show is that like all this relationship power is held by Danny. Like she may be infatuated. She may even love him in some way, but she is capable of using him and discarding him when it's politically expedient. Uh, and I thought that yeah. was a pretty, pretty sweet little, uh, that's cool. And you know, it's interesting because it, it, it he is something of a one dimensional character, but Mm-hmm. He is a tool. He's like a literary tool to allow. She, he's like a rung on a ladder for, for Danny. Mm-hmm. You know, she has mm-hmm. to ascend. Her character has to ascend, you know, to, to someone that you could you might consider like not just mother of dragons, but mother of Westeros. Right. Right. So so Dario's kind of an important rung on the ladder for her. Um, so I thought those were some interesting points. The other thing that jumped out at me in this second volume of Gods of Thrones, um, is a little segment I like to call fun with names because (laughs) we we do have a lot of fun with names. Yeah. And it's so so funny because, um, I started thinking about this when I was doing True Detective, uh, last month in that, uh, you know, it stars Mahershala Ali. Um, and, I did not know this, but Mahershala's full name is like Mahershala Shala Hasbaz, which is a biblical is like the long is it's it's famed as being the longest name in the Hebrew Bible. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. And I forget who this guy. I think he was like one of maybe Dan, the prophet Daniel's friends, because like wow. there's a whole. Well, look, dude, you're showing me up, man. No oh, shit. Uh, but yeah, I also <laughs> I got no idea about this. Right. Well, it's um. so like, but that's like, that's a fuck. That's a name. That's a name that like gets up and put its pants on and strides out the door every morning. Uh, And there's a lot of these interesting names. I want to I want to go through a, a few of them. So okay. you're talking about um in the book. So one of the chapters revolves around the Targaryens. And we've already talked about a lot of this and, and comparing them to Egyptian and, yeah. and other like this, 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 this cult of a dragon, like the fact that they consider themselves gods. Uh, you say that this isn't unprecedented in our real life because the uh, this is an ancient Babylonian or Macedonian king Marduk. Or yeah, is this a, yeah, Babylonian like a God Marduk, and, and probably borrowing from earlier myths. But yeah, uh-huh. Marduk, in order to bring uh, stability to creation, Marduk has to demonstrate power over chaos. Uh huh. And, and, and this chaos is represented by a dragon. That, yeah. he's t- that he's taming and, he, and and we actually have a picture of this book of this this relief this bass relief sculpture where it shows him with this dragon kind of like you know like like in a lap dog not a lap dog but like as a like a like a like healing like a dog yeah so he a little, has d- little dog dragon yeah and, and, this and dra- dra- go ahead go ahead i was just gonna say the dra- dragons are all uh, often uh be- before they become kind of european greed monsters right uh, in in ancient mythology, dragons almost always represent chaos. Mm-hmm. So the the Marduk has to defeat a dragon named Mushushu. So that that yeah no Mushushu Mushushu uh-huh. is the chaos dragon. And once Marduk is uh, defeats Mushushu, then uh, Marduk can demonstrate that he's got a handle on on the created order and he keeps Mushishu as a pet to mm. kind of like he, he basically it's, a, it's it, the dragon becomes a slave right i think it's interesting too because like um you mentioned that uh, this is something you, you talk about in the the book that you know chaos as humans conceive it religiously as a lot of times has um 
connections like the water, the ocean. Right. Um, you know, the ocean is – and then this comes from, uh, you know, if you're a land-based mammal and you go out in the ocean, my God, you could – your ships get beat to splinters and there's no control over it. And then dry it's land, there's, yeah. there's stability there. Um, and that – it's interesting that the, dragons like a worldwide phenomenon, but there's definitely a split where like the Asiatic dragons are more tend to be kind of neutral or even good blessings uh, and, and, and good omens. Whereas the European dragons are, as you say, the, the greed monsters um, that are these powerful, destructive, borderline evil chaos. And I want, but what, what's interesting is it's almost like those dragon identities split because uh, you also point out that um, dragons in like China and other Asian cultures are associated with like water deities. Yeah, um, they're, they're, they bring rain. They live underwater, so they'll live in the lake or they'll live in in, in the river. Mm -hmm. And when they ascend to heaven, they'll bring the water with them so that it will rain. Mm -hmm. So dragons are the yin, and tigers are the yang. And you you do not want too much of one or the other. You want balance. You want to be right. able to have your crops watered. And so you will create these religious rituals around dragons to get the dragons to actually do their job. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's interesting that the, this this ancient chaos dragon seems to be split in that like uh, the 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 Eastern philosophies and religions kept the aspect of it tied to like, you know, the water, water and chaos that way. But overall benevolent because you need the dragons to go into the sky to bring right. the water with them so you can get rain where in europe it's like uh, the like like the west the western philosophies and religions conceived them as kept the chaos in like their personalities yeah. and their aspects and their power well consider living in uh, living in england you're, you're living on a big island right right and so <clears throat> If water, you do water, have a probably myth, not a, pro also droughts and water probably not as big a problem as some of the more desert climbs and sure yeah. and 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 you're going to end up you know if you're going to borrow the mythology of dragons uh you're going to borrow it in such a way that makes sense to your own culture all right so that's mashushu uh you also mentioned that you know Aladdin uh he of the the thousand tales and the fort and and the uh, all that in Disney, he's popularly seen as courting and winning the affections of a princess named Jasmine. Yeah, it's a nice name, right? Uh, it is. It's a nice name. It's beautiful. Um, smells like it, it. It sounds like it's fragrant and smells very nice. Uh, but you mentioned that in the actual legend, legend, legend of Aladdin, the legend of Aladdin, that he yeah. married a woman named I. I'll take a stab at it. Bad roll, bad door. Badrubledor. Badrubledor. Yeah, but durable though. It's not a beautiful name. I, it's it is a lot of fun to say. It looks it's very bouncy. <laughs> if you if you're looking for a, a name for your your daughter, let's mm -hmm. say you're you're expecting, consider Batrubaltor. What would be the short? What would you call it for short? Because you can't do bad. Badass dour, mama. Badass. Padrulbador. Uh and then I think you suggested another one for fun with names is a Pacific Island god, if I'm if I'm not if yeah, I'm not Kumugwe. Wrong. Kumugwe. Kumugwe. All right, now Kumugwe, uh I don't really know if I'm pronouncing this correctly. This is a uh, uh lower mainland uh Canada, so Vancouver area. Uh Kumugwe is, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but I know a lot about him. 
Oh, so this isn't Pacific Islander. This is more First Nation. God. This is First Nations. Yeah. Okay, and and this is the, the 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 interesting thing about him is usually underwater deities are like like evil or right. We bring this guy up in the Ironborn religion because they, the 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 object of their veneration is an underwater deity. Uh-huh. Which is which is odd. You normally you worship the sky god and the underwater deities. Right. Underwater's where all the chaos lives. Yeah, you don't want chaos. So but but I love this guy because he lives underwater and he's awesome. Like so I give a few facts about Kamungwe in, in the in the book. Um his his head is a, as big as an island. He's the master of seals. Uh his nemesis and is that's, that's like the uh flippers and balancing balls on the seals, not like, you know, <laughs> wax or anything like that. Or the singer. The singer's uh, right. <laughs> his nemesis is uh, Tsekwame, who's a great bird that makes thunder with its wings and lightning with its eyes. Uh, Kamungwe uh, controls the tides. He sees into the future. He has octopi bodyguard. So he's got this troop of of, <laughs> of octopi that serves as his bodyguard. Uh, he's wealthy beyond belief. He eats human <laughs> He eats human eyeballs. And he might give if you find him, he might give you magical powers or eat your eyeballs. <laughs> and my favorite fact about him is that he resides in a house made of living sea lions. Well, you know, it makes sense. He's the master of seals. Um, is because so if I if I was going to meet uh, Kamugwe, yeah, and I wanted a magic powers and I don't want my eyeballs to be eaten, is there anything I should keep in mind? Is there a is, does he like his belly rubbed? Does he? <laughs> What kind of fragrant <laughs> spice does he like to have as a burnt offering? I would just be polite. Be polite? All right. Yeah. <laughs> so he also values uh, manners. Uh, yeah, that's sure. That's cool. That's cool. You can't uh, buy him off. He's got all the money already. Yeah. That's true. Um, okay. We actually had a fair amount of feedback from the last time before we took our winter hi- hiatus when we were still doing the Fire and Blood and Gods of Thrones promo for the, the first volume. Uh, so I thought before we got onto any new issues and just obviously not any new, new issues until we start releasing the podcast again, uh, we could go back and kind of, uh, bat cleanup. So these are, at, these are emails that we got essentially last, uh, December. Um, and we're going to consider them now. You can send feedback as always to game of thrones at baldmove.com. Uh, you can also discuss this stuff with your fellow fans at our forums, forums.baldmove.com. All right, without further ado, Jordan W's up first. Says, I was just listening to the Start of Fire and Blood Part 3 podcast. I thought I'd weigh in about the state of the Night's Watch. You guys were discussing how the Night's Watch has declined so quickly and that it seems strange considering how many recruits they were receiving after each war. Anthony, I think, mentioned that it would only take one king not sending their enemies to the wall to mess the Night's Watch up. And my immediate thought was big old Bobby B. Robert fought in two wars in his life, and after each one didn't send very many, if any, uh, in the case of the Greyjoy Rebellion, to the Wall. When Jor Mormont is talking about the Watch, he refers to them as tired old men and green boys, as if there is a generation with a few, with very few people taking the black. Um, mm. an- another thing that occurred to me is that before Robert, we had the Mad King that wouldn't send traitors to the Wall because he preferentially burned them. Between the two of them, it's a long time since the Night's Watch had a large influx of recruits like they got at the end of Dance with Dragons. 
Yeah, so this is Bobby B was infam- was was famous for being very lenient to his foes and pardoning them of their crimes. Um, and essentially, the only ones that like ended up at the wall were people like Alistair Thorne, who were too proud to like essentially ask for the pardon or admit the guilt. You know, um, so you've got a king, you, and and I I think that his logic tracks here, Anthony. That you've got uh. You've got a king and the 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 mad king Eris who was was burning his enemies and not allowing them to take the black, and you've got Bobby B who was just allowing them to resume their old posts and lands and titles if they would just you know kneel, uh, not forcing a bunch of people to pl- take the black. Because one thing in Fire and Blood is, you know, there was times where the wall would swell. Like yeah. you'd have thousands of people sent there because every minor lord that turned the hand against the king or was involved in a Blackfire rebellion or a dance with dragons, uh, you know, would either be executed or sent to the wall. That's does so kind of match. What would be the the period? All right, so let's imagine it's about a thirty year period. Uh, if you just took the reign of right. of the Mad King and then Bobby B, right? How, how many years is that? Uh, I... uh between, just, so between it's, Mad King and it's like twenty years, right? Long enough for Ned to have a couple of kids and one of them to be like sixteen. Right. So Less let's than just 20 say years. Yeah, let's just say that you've got a let's say a twenty year period where no one's going you know, very few people are going to the wall. Right. Um, other than like common condemned criminals, you know. And the average lifespan's about, you know, forty five years old. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, so it's it sounds like what Mormont says, we've got, you know, old old men and green boys. Uh yeah, you're missing a generation there. No, I and, like it. Makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, also because like if the other thing Fire and Blood makes clear is like at the beginning of the Targaryen dynasty the night's watch is pretty is fine they're still garrisoning all their castles they're still like occupying the night fort although they did mention that the night fort was so big and disrepaired because the night's watch wasn't as formidable as they used to be but they're not like where they are in the baratheon period where they're down to essentially the three most important castles and very poorly manned at that they can't afford to keep the 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 haunted forest cut back like they should right um and they're you know like letting regular wilding patrols that have the tenacity so this is interesting so a lot of a lot of fans like to talk about why the why didn't the white walkers emerge sooner yeah you know you know they've been they've been up there for thousands of years or whatever right? right so why now? Well, I guess one way to look at it would be like, well, the the human sacrifice with Craster kind of mm-hmm. stopped. Mm-hmm. Another way to look at it would be the White Walkers are just paying attention and they're realizing that the Night's Watch is, you know, the, these these castles are falling into disarray. The Night's Watch is dwindled. If ever they're going to make a move, this is the time to do it. Mm-hmm. And so it could just be like it's the timing thing is dictated simply because it's opportunistic. Oh yeah, the, the 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 Night's Watch is just just really weak. Mm-hmm. So maybe it has nothing to do with Craster. I don't know. Um, let's move on to Caitlin H, who says, "I'm just listening to your God of Thrones episode about Catelyn." Caitlin's wanting to talk about Catelyn. Hmm. And you guys have discussed the role of Lady Stoneheart in the books as well as her interaction with Brienne. 
I wanted to throw a thought to the mix because I love where the discussion is going, but I have an alternate idea about what happens with her. First, though, I want to say that I think Lady Stoneheart may not be Arya's redemption because I think that will be Gendry and possibly Nymeria. Um, I know probably not, but I'm hopeful. Actually, there's a... Um, you make an interesting point in the book about how Nymeria might... Like, the fact that they she was introduced... Actually, no, this wasn't you. This was Alt-Shift-X. <laughs> <laughs> Alt Shift uh, uh, X on his video doing the trailer breakdown kind of made the yeah. point out that, you know, why would you establish Nymeria after everyone has essentially forgotten her last episode? Yeah, it's a, it's a nice grace note for Arya, but would be super fucking badass if like an army of wolves led by a dire wolf features prominently in like the Battle of Winterfell right. or something like that. Like it's not even... It's not even a force that's directly controlled by the humans. It's just human. Adja- it's just human allied and adjacent. Um, so anyway, you're, you you might if Alt Shift X. Uh, well, is and on in your that side, video, Caitlin. he kind of slows it down and says, uh-huh. "Look, look in between these horfobs." Oh, there's also yeah. There's also it some looks di- like there's a wolf. There's a wolf there. And Which, you know what? You know we have part ghosts. of me thinks you know the double D's. It's not like they're immune to hearing fan complaints. They know that we want direwolves, and they're right? they kind of almost over responsive to something. They almost complaints. owe yeah. us. They yeah, yeah, owe yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it could be one of those things like, yeah, we're gonna give them to you, but we need to. You, you can't look at them every scene, or else it won't be thrilling, right? When we when we reveal them in the penultimate episode or whatever right. it is, they want to see tears of joys running running down our our nerd cheeks when when the direwolves <laughs> finally take the battlefield. <laughs> All right, so back to Caitlin. She says, my hope for Lady Stoneheart is that she and Bran run into each other in some way, and Bran is able to reassure her that the girls are alive through his voodoo knowledge, and she's finally able to rest. Um, back to Brienne, Anthony was just stating on the pod that if anyone values honor and their word in this world, it's Brienne. You both have agreed that you think a single word Brienne says is sword. This is referring to the uh, the, 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 the final... Well, I guess not final because we get we find we we actually get with Brienne before the end of the books. But but Lady Stoner has captured her and she's given her a choice about whether she's going to accept uh, her new role to assassinate Jamie Lannister or whether she's going to be hung. Yeah, hanged, what is it? Noose hanged. or sword? Or yeah, something noose like that. or choose between noose or sword. And we hear all we hear is that Brienne says a single word, and then later in the story she tells Jamie, "Hey." Uh, I got to show you something in the Riverlands, and then that's where we leave her. So, um, if I recall correctly, Catelyn says, Caitlin says, when Brienne pledged her sword, there was a caveat in the oath where uh, Catelyn said she swore to never ask of Brienne anything that went against her honor. At the same time, the Brienne ah. swore never to dishonor Cat. I like to think that the choice Lady Stoneheart gives Brienne doesn't have a correct answer or any honorable solution. By choosing sword, she would commit murder of a man she believes to be good that would be and would be dishonorable. By choosing noose, she would never fulfill her vows to protect the girls. So I hypothesize the single word she says to Lady Stoneheart's hand uh, is honor. Family, duty, honor, and deed, which would resonate with Catelyn because that's her, that's her uh, family's words. And I've... Yeah. That's really compelling. I've actually never personally seen it stated like that. So it's like Brienne would find a third way that would appeal to what, like, like the 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 Cat Catelyn's ghost, essentially her deepest held like core values. Yeah, I like it. I like it too. It's it, here's the question: it, How is Martin setting us up? Because that's this is how Martin writes. Mm-hmm. He sets you up. Right, mm-hmm. he's gonna he's gonna jab with his left like three times and then 
bring the right around and punch you in the face. Mm -hmm. So how is he setting us up? Is he setting us up to fall in love with the idea of Brienne and Jamie just to kind of cut us off at the knees? Or is he setting us up to make us think, okay, Brienne is clearly betraying Jamie, but you're going to have some sort of brilliant catastrophe at the end of this where where I, someone I, saves the day. I think clearly the reader is supposed to think, unless you're doing like double reverse, no take backs logic. Uh, I think that the the reader is supposed to understand that um, Jamie's in real jeopardy when like oh, yeah. I, I I felt very like oh no when when Brienne goes and approaches him at King's Landing and says I need the I need to show or was it a King's Landing or was it actually in a he's says, he's I think he's in the in the geez. He, he's in the he's in the wilderness somewhere he's not okay. in the neck he's in the okay. crown lands or something yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So he's in the Crownlands uh, or wherever it is, and uh, Brienne, who has just been given this ultimatum by Lady Stoneheart, mm-hmm. says, "You got to make a choice here." And then she shows up and says, "Hey, I found one of the Stark girls. It's either Sansa or Arya. I forget. And you have you got to come with me. It's like a day's ride away." And so he leaves. Yeah, but we happen to know that neither Arya or Sansa is where she's claiming him to be. So she's right. clearly she is clearly lying, right? To, so, da- to Jamie, I right? just looked it up. She's this is this happened at Pity Tree, which is a small village just north of River Run. So it's in the Riverlands. But, okay, good. But but yeah, the this what what you said is entirely right. So I think you're supposed to understand that she's. Uh, Shanghai, which makes me think because I do think in terms of double secret reverse uh, no take back twists that uh, Martin, his, whatever he wants you to think or whatever is the plain reading is probably something different. So the right. question is, like, how is Brienne going to pull this off? Is she going to, like, bring Jamie before Catelyn and, like, through some sort of argument? Get, bring uh, Lady Stoneheart to her way of thinking. Well, look, is... I look. I I think the world of of Brienne. Uh-huh. I've heard. I actually I heard uh, uh, Martin call her Brienne. <laughs> uh-huh. So so I think of the world of Brienne, but she is no match for Catelyn, uh, Lady Stoneheart's intellect. If she's right. going to try to outcraft the crafty, yeah, Catelyn Stark. I don't have I don't have a high I don't have a high sense of hope for that. She'd need a law, at least a law degree, and she does not have that. So whatever the case is, she just lied to Jamie to trick him into coming away from his army which into is, the wilderness, which is not very Brienne type behavior. No, no. So there's like I said, there's a lot of a lot of indications that maybe not everything's what it is. But I, I'm honestly. I'm pulling for some version of what Kat, Caitlin here is suggesting because I've been a Brienne Jamie Shipper. I want uh, I, I, I want Brienne and and Torment to get together. And oh, have gi- gigantic have a, children that will rule the North. We're gonna have a fight on this here podcast. I see. All right. All right. Okay. Well, you know, everyone has their f- fucking opinions. I guess. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to Evan. Evan S. has a question, which is, how do they address the years in Essos? I made a mental note during my rewatch of Game of Thrones where Daenerys mentions a time frame in regards to years in Westeros. 
Um, I have forgotten the exact episode, but most likely the episode in question happens in season four. Um, that's the problem with the mental notes. Not as reliable as actual notes. I realized that Westeros tracks years in regards to Aegon's conquering. I can't imagine Aegon's uh, conquering has any relevance to West uh, to uh, Essos outside of Westeros. I can't find anything that specifically says how they track years. Our current way of telling years is pretty much based on religious significance. I was curious if anything you came across in your research for your book would lead you to draw similarities to how Essos tracks years. This is a fantastic question. It really is, yeah. That, as far as I can tell, after researching it for about an hour, has no answer that has been established in any kind of canon source or fact. Uh, which, when you think about all the questions George has been asked, this is a pretty good one. Um, so, yeah. In Westeros, the maesters count time based on, like, the zero year is when Aegon conquered Westeros and, and united it. So, right. like, we're roughly 300-ish AC after Aegon's conquering um, as, they, as they account time. But why is there any – so, so – Let's 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 now since there is no definitive answer, let's do what we do in the book, Anthony, which is try to find precedent in the real world that Martin is basing his 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 saga on and see if there is any. Well, what are the reasons? Everyone has a reason for creating a calendar, right? Every people around the world, you need sure. a calendar to at bare minimum track the growth cycles so you can get your harvests planted. Right. You know when the migrations are going to start and you know when things are going to get cold. You don't. So every culture kind of comes up with their own calendar. Um, right. And if if Martin – I mean here, here, here would be the, the simple answer to Evan's question. Mm-hmm. That because Essos is a continent with lots of different ancient cultures, probably most of those different cultures or different states are going to have their own calendar. Yeah. So, uh, so in the ancient worlds, you, you measured, you measured these things in many cases by the reign of Kings. Mm-hmm. So you'd like to say, well, in the third year of the reign of King Josiah or something like that. Right, right, right. You right. wouldn't say like in 21 BC. Right. Uh, so, so the answer is there would be no unified system in Essos because it has so many different cultures. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be one way to do it. Uh, you, you could, you could do it by the reign of Kings, um, or you could do it from a, a major event. Um, so like, I don't know, it could be that some cultures would measure it by like the doom of Valyria or, uh, you know, I think traditionally, uh, the Jewish calendar, like right now it's 2019 for Jews, but they know that traditionally speaking, uh, this is the year five thousand seven hundred and seventy nine and the and the reason that it's that is because this is this is sort of by tradition when the world was created mm-hmm. it was created about six thousand years ago mm-hmm. so and hey man you'd be hard pressed to find a Jew who actually believes in young earth creationism sure. But just traditionally, we've inherited. We inherited, say, we all inherit a mythology. Remember the know? conversation we had about the pyramids. Uh, there's some problems with the timeline of the of the world beginning less than six thousand <laughs> years ago. The pyramids are from aliens, dude. Yeah, well, of course, that's the only way they could have gotten there so soon after creation or concurrently, and right. it's the case right. maybe. So anyway, so, so every culture is going to have a different calendar, and we and and clearly Martin has not given us enough detail to know how what the, these different cultures of 
of Esso's but, uh, but we, and, and how they track the, their tradition. But what are, so the was the the forces so everyone starts with their own calendar but like we're now living in 2019 and almost all of the world has adopted the Gregorian calendar. There are I I in my research I found there's a few holdouts uh yeah. like Iran, Afghanistan, uh Ethiopia, Nepal uh, right. At least, like, a th- I, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the Gregorian calendar and, those ca- and probably to some extent uses it. But for official state purposes, they are maintaining their own calendars. And, of course, as you mentioned, the Jewish calendar is still being maintained. The Chinese calendar is still being maintained. Those are just ones I can think off the top of my head. But right. the, but but we the reason the world has gone to the Gregorian calendar is because of essentially trade. Like, if, imagine if everyone had their different calendar and everyone's got different invoice dates um, the more cultures trade, the more they start trying to synchronize languages, like coming up with language for diplomacy, a universal a lingua franca for that, coming up with a, a, a standardized calendar, uh, time zones. All that stuff is from a desire to have some kind of order from this chaotic system that used to be about. Now, I think you could make an argument that you can make an argument that maybe the free cities that do a lot of trade with um uh, with with Westeros might actually use the the Aegon conquering calendar well either that or they know of it like for instance i mean think of you mentioned language i think that's mm-hmm. a great analog here mm-hmm. because you know let's say you're you are a big business uh business person in china mm-hmm. well of course and if you're doing any commerce with with americans you're going to know English, you're going to know how, you know, you're going to know how Americans date, you know, date the calendar Mm -hmm. Um, and date years and and all of that business. They're going to know about daylight savings, even though it it doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. in China what daylight savings is in America. Mm -hmm. Whereas from an American perspective, we only know one dating system. We only speak one religion. I mean, we only speak, we only speak one language. I mean, to a certain extent. You know, there, there's a lot less bilingual people in America than there are in other places. Sure. But I think it's just, the other thing that's complicated is that Essos, we think that Westeros is like the primary continent because that's where all the action's taking place. But Essos does not see it that way. Essos sees Westeros full of a bunch of backwards, uh, stinking barbarian people. Yeah, they're, uh, they're Johnny Come Latelys. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, 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 yeah, they're they they're, they you know like some of these cultures are truly ancient, and also there's some cult like like Slavers Bay, for example. Like so, like if the free cities trade with Westeros and they have like some kind of working knowledge with their calendar, maybe they've unified a calendar for trade purposes. Like Slavers Bay, what would be the incentive for Slavers Bay to adopt a Westeros calendar? Because slavery is outlaw, slave trade is outlawed in Westeros, so they are just completely shut out of that market. So so I could see like Slavers Bay um, being like, well, that that you know, the hell with any kind of like secretarial bookkeeping work that that, right. that has to do with Westeros because they're like persona non grata there. So I think you could make some plausible arguments about like who shares what calendars and who's familiar with what, but it, it's it's all going to be about essentially trade or or also conquest like if if um if Danny was able to unite both Westeros and Essos against this common threat um yeah I don't know I that that's that's too far I don't think Danny's going to rule over Essos there's no way there's no way that the, the end of this game is that uh, that there's some kind of worldwide government that's that's united under Danny and her dragons right no I doubt that however 
if you look at the history of Britain, mm-hmm. you've got this period of time where they master warfare on the water, right? They, they master what a, a fleet of ships and an armada looks like. Mm-hmm. And it brings them an enormous amount of power for, for a short period of time. If, if we measure it by like, you know, the Chinese calendar or something like that. Right. Right. And clearly in this last season, the, the addition of a fleet of a thousand ships is a big deal. So that's going to be a big, that's going to be a big piece on the chessboard in the coming books and the coming season, I think. So I don't know. What do you do with those ships after you've defeated the White Walkers? I don't know. It could be colonization. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, because like that's the thing is like if you have this big muscular army and navy, uh, the temptation's constantly to use it because otherwise it's just burning a hole in your pocket, right? <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do with it? So if uh, Westeros wins the battle against the White Walkers in a convincing fashion and they have like this new marital uh, or martial culture and uh, strong naval fleet, uh, maybe they could cause trouble in uh, Essos. Wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> So well, so much for a dream of spring. It would certainly be the you know in keeping with our our history. It's yeah. it's more of like instead of a dream of spring, it's more like a dream of Warhammer forty k style eternal warfare <laughs> under the God Empress Danny. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, uh, good feedbacks. So that's the podcast for this week. That's the feedback. You can send in more to Game of Thrones at baldmove dot com. As we mentioned, you can pre-order Volume 2 of Gods of Thrones right now on Amazon, or you can enjoy Volume 1 right now in print and ebook format by going to Amazon.com and searching for Gods of Thrones Volume 2, Aaron Hubbard, or you can just uh, click on the show notes here, and we got a link that will take you right there. We'll be back next week with another preview podcast for Gods of Thrones Volume 2, and then the week after that, Jim will be back in studio joining me to break down everything about Season 8. Uh, Our predictions, what we think is going to happen, who's going to live, who's going to die. All spoiler-free speculation. That starts the week after. Man, we're just really getting excited about Game of Thrones. Can't wait for it to be back on the air. And we will see you next week. And until then, I'm Aaron. Later. Later.